Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Elb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com, to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. Our guest today is Neil Sequeira, co-founder and managing director at DeFi. DeFi backs exceptional entrepreneurs at the early stages. Some of their early investments include Fable, Triller, and Boom Sports. Previously, Neil served as managing director of General Catalyst and has been a venture capitalist for over 20 years. I had a blast chatting with Neil about the current state of VC, celebrities co-founding consumer companies, and the verticalization of social that's currently happening, and categories he's comfortable writing for checks in. Without further ado, here's Neil. Neil, thank you so much for being here. How are you today? I'm great, Mike. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate you having me on the show. Oh, no, it's, it's a great pleasure to have you. Great pleasure. Uh, I want to talk about the very early days of your career. What was your initial attraction to technology and venture capital? Yeah, so my parents immigrated uh, when I, right before I was born to the United States and uh, immigrated to Oakland, California. And so we lived uh, in a little basement in Oakland. And then my parents went to night school. My mother became a lawyer in the Valley and my dad became a 35-year engineer at IBM. And so you had to look back all the way back. Uh, having a uh, dad who's an engineer at IBM really was inspirational. Uh, I would get computers brought home that he was trying to fix um, or that he was trying to, in the early days of the PC. Uh, so uh, having done that, um, you know, as I went to school and then my first few jobs out of school were, were different industries, but very technology related. So one was actually in the entertainment business, one was consulting, and one was uh, in the banking side of the world. And so never having a real job right in technology, but being on the periphery made the industry very interesting to me. And so once I got to business school, I decided that was the direction I wanted to head after school. So that's what kind of got me interested in it. Definitely a family history, as well as uh, some early work experiences on the periphery of technology. How did you make your way into venture capital? Well, it's funny, you know, I was in business school and uh, was looking around, it was 98 to 2000s. And uh, venture capital is actually a pretty interesting industry all of a sudden, <laughs> right before that first bubble. And there was a firm in Boston that was growing really fast, an investment firm called CMGI. I was fortunate enough to have a friend who worked there and uh, got to interview and went through the process and joined their uh, investment team at CMGI um, in, in June of 2000. So we were a publicly traded venture capital firm. I had spent so much time trying to get introductions into venture and get to know people. And uh, I got there and the market just collapsed. <laughs> and so my first experience in venture was not really investing at all. I actually had to start selling companies to keep the firm alive because we were one of the few publicly traded venture firms. And so I was actually selling businesses to different folks just to try to figure out if we could get cash in the door so we could keep the, the, the front door open. And so I, I always laugh because in retrospect, not going into venture and immediately starting to kind of throw money around, but rather really realize what's 
really hard, which is when things don't go right and when things are a struggle and when things are a challenge. And luckily I sold one company to AOL, which at the time was one of the hottest companies in the world, right before the merger with Time Warner and got to know some team members at AOL. And they were starting a small investment group. Beyond realizing how the hard times were difficult, I also realized if you want to be successful in venture, having a network is pretty important. And so while I didn't, a lot of people told me not to do it. I joined AOL in 2001. So after a year of, of trying, trying venture, my first month, uh, they announced the merger with Time Warner. Um, so again, never follow my advice because the, the stock just plummeted for the next four years. But the important part was I learned venture in a different environment. Uh, it was more corporate. And number two, you know, which hasn't really been talked about too much, the people I worked with, when you go to some of those companies, end up being part of your network and your friendship group for a long time. So I worked with Jeremy Liu, who was um, at AOL at the time, and now he's a partner at Lightspeed. I worked with Chamath, who ran AIM at the time, um, which was AOL Instant Messenger. And now Chamath has obviously done quite a bit um, since then. And uh, worked with Ted Maidenberg, who's now the founder of Tribe.co. Worked with the entire team out of Revolution Ventures. Mike Spirito, who's now at Sapphire Sport. Um, Heidi Crowell, who's done a lot in venture in more of a, a nonprofit or uh, impact sense. And so literally, I ended up doing Honest Company with Jeremy, which ended up being one of my more successful investments. My first venture investment when I joined General Catalyst was with Chamath. I've done three investments with Ted. I've done two with Mike. So the first experience was kind of this very challenging period, but you learn a lot during the challenging periods. And one thing I learned was, hey, when things are tough, like, you know, keep your head down, work hard, and then try to build a network early in your career because that network will carry with you um, as long as you're in business. That's amazing, especially the amount of talent and the amount of people that you were around uh, during that time. Recently, um, I had on, I think the episode actually dropped last week was with uh, Tyke Savage. I, I worked directly with Tyke. So he said revolution matches with Tyke. I love Tyke. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, that's amazing. That's amazing. Because I remember you mentioned Revolution. So that's great. That's great. Yeah, he was fantastic to have on the show. He seems like a great guy. And think about this notion of, you know, when times are tough, you know, of course, on the venture side, or, or maybe when you're young in a career, but also on the founder side, too, meaning like when the market isn't actually maybe going your way, or when we're in the bit of the downturn. I know, obviously, in that 98 to 2000 period, we certainly experienced that with, um, with, with things kind of going to the moon and then, and, and then coming right back down in a very big way. How do you think about this current era of COVID and, and how are you thinking about price? Because it seems like also in the private markets, you know, the money just keeps kind of coming in. I'm just kind of curious on how you think about the market today. Yeah, so living through 0001 and then living through 2008, 2009, and then seeing this run for the last, this has been an 11 year run. Like this is, this is a long time of a straight up and to the right. I look at it a couple of ways. One, I'm really lucky because my firm and, and I invest in early stage venture. And early stage venture does usually go through a cycle. And so we're not investing at the end of like a big growth round at the end, where if we're at the end of a cycle, it'll be a challenge, right? Um, and so we, we know and we, we tell our entrepreneurs that, hey, you know, there will be a blip, there will be a turn and we'll be there for you. And, and you need to have those type of investors around you. So even when we look for follow on rounds of financing or future rounds, we tell the entrepreneurs just, you know, find people who, you know, been through a battle or two and know that, you know, usually you're private for seven to 10 years, right? So if you're private for that long, you're gonna go through a cycle. 
this has, to answer your question more specifically, this has been very different in seeing this long of a run of capital uh, flowing into the market. Probably a few reasons for that. One is companies had stayed private longer. So you had actual really good businesses that were going public, which was now in, in some ways a blessing because you know you have these really good companies as private as public companies that have been around for a long time. Number two, you know, over my 22 years doing this, venture has become a, a more uh, important part of the overall economy. Technology has become a more important part of the overall economy. It's ingrained in every part of our lives, whether it's the iPhone in your pocket or um, you know, the internet, generally speaking, it's ingrained in our lives. And that's been a change over that period of time. Number three, you know, there has been a change in venture and that the later stage has just attracted a lot of capital. And there's reasons, lots of reasons for that. Uh, the later stages attract a lot of capital. So while we don't feel it as much in the early stage side. I think you definitely feel it in the later stage where rounds are faster, things are going quicker. You know, it's really, really competitive. The way you differentiate is often balance sheet differentiation and how big you are, your brand and your reputation. That is, that is a big change. So the way we think about it is there's only a benefit to early stage folks if there's great capital later in the market. There's only benefit to entrepreneurs being late capital just try to encourage people to know that things won't you know, always stay kind of as they happen. Um, there will be some turn at some point. And then I'll just conclude by saying, most of the turns only are a year or two. So we have a fun chart we show our limited partners in March of last year, between June of last year, during kind of the hardest part of COVID, the overall venture uh, dollars dropped about 42% just during that period. And what we did was we tripled our investment pace between March and June. So we increased it by 300% because we'd lived through these two cycles before. And we, and we, and we were like, hey, this is going to get better. We didn't know the vaccine was going to come out in a year, but it was going to get better. And after that period, more money went into venture later in the year and early this year. But it's really those moments of time where you see that these markets do change again. Like Even if you do see a blip or things turn, usually might like, come out of it. Like it's not, there's not, especially in technology, because it tends to be a really elastic and buoyant asset class. Like it will, it will happen again. And usually you come out of it. No, totally. I mean, those are all really good points. And I also appreciate, you know, how you were a bit contrarian in the hardest time during COVID of March to June, you actually increased your deployment of capital by 300% where others, I mean, I remember talking to entrepreneurs at that time and, and it was, it was almost what they were having very productive calls with investors. And then it kind of went silent a couple months there. And so that's, that's really great to hear on your side, your thought process. But I guess during that March to June part of COVID, even though you were deploying a lot more capital, did your thesis or your thinking of what types of verticals, what types of companies I want to invest in or should invest with, did that change at all? Great question. It didn't change significantly. So some of the investments we made were in a company called Honorlock, which was, uh, you know, an online remote test proctoring business. We were already in, in kind of getting close to getting a deal done there and online remote proctoring became pretty important. So we were already in business to get there. We invested in the dip, which was a consumer business that's uh, focused on entertainment. And again, we've known the founder of the dip for a long time. And uh, she was one of the founders of Bustle. And so, you know, we were, we did look at what was probably going to happen and entertainment was going to remain important to people, right? Like going forward, I'd say the one thing maybe where we, I wouldn't call it deviated, but we had what we call a sage here, which is we have six folks who are entrepreneurs and CEOs of current companies who help us look at 
the world and the business and help our entrepreneurs like think through the ups and downs in a market. One of them has to be a gentleman named Sujil Patel. And he was CEO of a company called, um, that is a little bit outside of our usual scope. It's a proteinomics company. So it uses technology to help solve and look at the proteins that then lead to new, vac- <laughs> it could be vaccines, but it could be any type of drugs. And, um, and that was one where I think maybe because of the time of COVID and realizing how important healthcare technology was going to become. And we had already done a couple of healthcare technology deals before that. We did make an investment in Nautilus and it actually went public a month ago, a couple months ago through VSVAC. And so we tried not to deviate. We would have done Honor Lock, we'd have done the dip, we would have done a fair, a fair amount of them. But there was one that I'd say, you know, definitely maybe the world influenced our kind of long-term vision about, hey, you know, we've been making investments in and around healthcare technology, like software generally, but healthcare technology. We should probably keep doing that because it's going to have more and more of an impact on the world. There are some great points because I've also spoke to other investors how they said that COVID really didn't change what they invest in or how they think because if it did, it would almost then be too late to get in. So that's how they think about it. So so yeah, no, that, that makes totally sense. How do you also think about the current state of early stage investing. I know that we talked about how in the growth stages, it's now really competitive. You have all this private money in, which of course for early investors, it's great because you have a lot more options for your companies to be financed. But also there's been certainly a proliferation over the past. I mean, I'd love to hear from your perspective of how in the past 20 years, what early stage was maybe then and what it was now. And just overall, just how are you thinking about it? When I started, early stage was very different. It was, you know, you'd write, you'd also often have partners in an A round, which people don't ever do anymore. <laughs> you have little partners that you want to, you need as much ownership as possible back then. You know, you'd often have a partner in your A round. The rounds would be five to $7 million for an A round. And we didn't have the proliferation of seed. So that's how the early change has really changed. And what we saw between 2010 and 15 was a real pro- proliferation of the seed market. And that's really healthy. There's a good thing having great seed investors who can start seed funds and can make those investments. We started um, Defy right after that, about five years ago. And the idea was there's proliferation of seed and larger firms were getting larger. And so you were left um, with the C plus and, and A minus type deals that were really hard for people to get done. Those became, we saw a window in the market that those became a little harder. And we think we've seen that. So we write between kind of three and $10 million checks. We will do C checks usually if we know the founder and they don't need kind of A minus round yet or the A round yet. They just need some capital. We will do those. But our core business, where it's 90% of our capital, is we initially write three to 10 and then we'll reserve another equal or more than that so that we can support them in the full A round, the B round, you know, et cetera. And so the reason the rounds we do tend to be a little harder is we're, we're usually the lead. We almost always sit on the board and we're putting real time into the company. So we do not really spring pray that way. We try to actually have core holdings that we want to own 15 to 20% of. And one of my old partners always used to joke, he, he used to say, you know, you should take our money because we're going to add so much value uh, between that year, year and a half before you raise it next round that the dilution will offset the, the, the capital that, you know, you take from us, right? Basically, we'll be here and we'll put in the hard work and it has worked so far. And again, it's just because it takes a lot of effort. For an early stage team, we have five investment partners because you have to, if you're going to make investments, you need real 
Uh, they all have great experience in their own verticals. So that's how early stages changed. It was a very different business 20 years ago. Seeds came up about, you know, seeds always existed, but, you know, the proliferation of seed market happened. And then there became this window, we felt like as firms were raising billion dollar funds and we were trying to raise kind of more reasonable size um, where you could play after the seed and before the growth rounds. Um, and, and it's worked out for us so far. So it, it seems maybe like a kind of a similar strategy to one of the first episodes actually on this podcast was with Paul Martino at Bullpen. And he was talking about how there's a bit of a gap that he saw between seed and Series A. And you have this kind of post-seed as you talk about it or seed plus rounds that maybe you're looking at entrepreneurs that might not have quite the metrics that you need to go out and raise like a full Series A. Is that kind of similar to your approach? We initially wanted to do kind of really true A's and we have done a lot of really true A's, but even really true A's have the same issue sometimes. You just don't have the metrics quite there. And we've done some C pluses because that might just be where it ended up being the right matter not for us. The way we pitched this originally to our limited partners was we're a series A firm. It's a little bit of an old school series A because we're still writing three to 10, which is what old school series A's used to look like. Um, and so we're a little bit of an, an old school series A. Paul's right though, that window exists, I think, where you could sit between the, those rounds. And Series A's, as defined by some of our brethren, are 15, $20 million Series A's. So we, you know, that's usually not what we do. I, I think there are other folks who saw something similar. I think um, John from Unusual, Peter from Wing, there's a few other folks who saw um, holes in the market where if you're willing to put your, get your hands dirty and do a fair amount of work, uh, you'll find a great outcome with a great entrepreneur. Yeah, no, that's great. That's great. I was actually talking to Paul at Canvas. It's funny because I interviewed Mike Gaffari like a year and a half ago, and he was saying how at the Series A, it was a bit of a crunch in that there was a lot of opportunities and there wasn't as many Series A funds. But Paul was saying how now that it's really flipped and, and really changed out, there's so much Series A activity and deals are just going faster and faster. And if that's the case, how do you manage speed versus doing the appropriate amount of like due diligence and be able to make decisions very, very quickly, but also uh, still uh, maybe doing like the full process. You know, having um, a pretty wide network because we have five of us and each one has a different network because we all come from very different places, I think gives us a big advantage because, you know, usually we can diligence things with, with folks who have built the company in a related area with customers, with doing references on the team pretty quickly. And so I think it's a little bit of a, it's been great for us having kind of a wider set of, of folks. We went through our, you know, I was telling you the story about what we show LPs around the, that period of time we increased by three. And we also show them that about 40% of our deals didn't go to market. And that is a huge differentiator, I think, amongst most uh, of our brethren in that we often will back people we've worked with before, or we'll often back with people we want to start a company with us or do something at the earliest stages. And so that's 40%. A good example, my partner, Brian, worked with uh, Kimberly, who uh, CEO of Novi, when they were at Eventbrite for six years, he hired her at Eventbrite, and she went on to data domain. When she was ready to build a company, The I think his pitch to her was, hey, you know, you know us, you trust us, we've been together, you know, we've been friends for a long time. We're going to give you a fair deal. Right. We might not be the highest, we might not be the lowest, we'll give you something that's fair. And do you really want to go spend uh, three months on the road or 
two months on the road or a month on the road trying to raise capital for this. When you kind of lay it out and an entrepreneur thinks about it, they're like, well, it may not be the highest, but it'll be fair. I really would like to start building. I'd like to start hiring. I'd like to start getting things done, right? And so some people say, no, that's okay. I'm going to go to market, take it to market, right? But, you know, we've seen almost 40% of ours never went to market. So that's the second way we solve this, right, is we have a network to try to diligence in time. But the second way is we try our best to work with people who we know or trust or spent years kind of just talking to, getting to know them. And that's been helpful to us. That's amazing. 40% actually don't go to market. That's uh, pretty impressive. And also I understand it too from the entrepreneur that I think you have to be careful because of course as an entrepreneur, especially in for a technology company, you're probably going to be raised more and more and more. Having a price that's you know fair and not too high, it actually in some ways can be a lot better because then the expectation level for too high a price when you go out and renew your, your, your next round might be too crazy. And you might need to do a down round, which doesn't look good or a bridge round, which um, I know there's like a phrase like bridge to nowhere. And so, you know, and that might not be long-term great for your company. So I do think that that is something, certainly something to pay attention to. Yeah, we definitely um, give them that exact advice point. So is, and then another one, I love the bridge to nowhere because it's very true. It often is the case. The other one is there's a great like four-year-old now tech crunch article about how safes aren't safe. If, uh, if any of the entrepreneurs listening want to look it up, you know, if you keep raising safes, right. And you don't, you know, get to a point where you can actually set a price when you actually are ready to go raise, it can be a real problem for you when you look at your cap table because you've raised a safe at five and 10 and 15 and 20. And then, and then you said that. And so there's things that you can point to that are just pure and clear evidence that taking something that's fair is gives you the chance to kind of then go up, raise a nice up round. It's good for your employees. There's no cram down at some point later. There's no, you get a fair amount of dilution in the next round. And I understand there are some entrepreneurs who need to try to, you know, are so passionate about going out and finding the right price and finding everything even early. Because it would be hard to argue that late you would do that, right? It would be hard to argue at a certain point when, when you're talking about, you know, as my friends used to say, gazunta rounds of financing, like huge rounds of financing. It would be very difficult to argue that um, there are some arguments. Maybe you really want Tiger Global on your balance sheet. Maybe you want Sequoia's growth fund on your, uh, on your cap table, right? There could be some arguments for that. But generally speaking, I think people are pretty motivated by price later on in growth rounds. And that's okay too, because you know, price is also there could be structure around it or other things that do change the price. But yeah, I think you're what you what you mentioned is one of the ways we try to talk to entrepreneurs about what's setting up your company for long-term success. Yeah, and it's sometimes I can imagine be difficult because since there's so much money now in the private markets, it can be really easy to really think, okay, this is a very attractive evaluation that I'm raising as I'm going to be getting the same amount of ownership, but um, my company is valued at, at an amazing time. But just how you, how you think about it as well, I think to your point is, okay, what does then like the next two years look like? What is that next fundraising? What are can we actually meet our objectives and actually get to where we need to be in order for um, the next price to make sense? That's exactly right. And it's hard to when you're going to raise that money. You are you're not expected to leave it on your balance sheet. You're going to hire your team. You're going to build, and then your revenues might lag your expense. Like things will the, the things will come into play, and then you're going to have to go back to market. And and when you go back to market, people will say. Well, it seems like your last round was a little in front of you. Let's just let's use nice terminology that people use. That seems like it was a little in front of you. 
uh, how do you, <laughs> and, and you'll say, well, I really wanted to invest a whole bunch early and, and try to kind of build the platform. And, and people might say that's a reasonable story and people might not. So it's, it's, it depends kind of where it's tough. It, could, it puts you in a little bit of a tough situation. This does not go for everyone. There are some entrepreneurs and there are some folks who can weave such a story. Um, they can continually raise money at great prices. <laughs> it just, you know, at a certain point, your numbers do catch up with you. Uh, you know, not, not in the early stages, but definitely at the growth stages where, uh, you know, people want to know what your customer acquisition looks like. They want to know what churn looks like. They want to know what the details of the, the business are, right? And while you don't probably have to worry too much about that early, you will have to worry about that later. So also, just speaking about price, have you seen a ton of variance when it comes to investing companies in um, San Francisco, the Bay Area versus other parts of the U.S. within price? Yeah. So, uh, you know, we, we are about 40% Bay Area and 60% across the country. We have a pretty decent cluster in Seattle. Um, we have a cluster in Florida. We have a cluster in New York. And we have a cluster in Southern California. And I think uh, what you find is the, there is a variance. I wouldn't say it's massive because people go to New York, people go to Seattle, people go to Southern California. It's not massive, but there's there's a variance. It's uh, because, and that I think it's just natural that the Bay Area uh, companies, for a couple of reasons, there's a cost of living, the cost of doing business, there's a cost of, and so fundamentally engineers cost more, things cost more. So you have to raise at you know a premium price just to be able to offset cost, right? Whereas if you're in Florida, you know, usually your cost of living is different. You can hire engineers for a little bit better of a price. So th- there's just general cost of the barrier. And then two, the proximity to a lot of venture capital um, ends up being a, uh, a another reason that the pricing ends up going a little faster. And, and that geographic proximity will just, you know, cause rounds to go faster. It'll cause more competition and it goes. So what has led for, I think a lot of VCs, we're not the only one, is that we will get on a plane um, or do Zooms. And especially when you have a cluster, as we do in certain markets, we you really know the folks in that market better than you would expect. Let me give you an example. We, we're in Honor Lock in Florida, and we previously invested in a company called High Winds in Florida. And the CEO of High Winds had personally invested in the Honor Lock CEO's previous company, right? So before as the CEO of Honor Lock was looking to go to market, you know, there's a few less VCs in Florida. There's some, and there's more every day because we were moving Miami, but there's there's some. And so the connection of folks uh, in the entrepreneurial community there is quite tight. They, they tend to know each other. They know how to get to each other by one degree of separation. And so when you have a, a few companies in a particular geography, it, it really helps on diligence. It helps on uh when you need to hire engineers, it helps on a lot of things. So, and, you know, we'd love to do investments, you know, anywhere we could. But, you know, we found that finding areas where you have a few in common have tended to be helpful to us. Let's also talk about what are some trends within consumer that you're particularly interested or excited about? Yeah, so we have historically done a lot in commerce. So just a lot generally in commerce, it's, it, there's an obvious reason for that. There's obviously upsides and downsides because we do consumer. And then we also do enterprise in commerce. You could play the infrastructure side of it, or you could play the direct consumer piece, right? So that's one where we've had a fair amount. We've also had some great investments in educational technology, ed tech. So we wouldn't have thought that I think when the firm started, but 
technology has been such a driver of education generally that, and, it, and COVID just kind of compounded that. We have uh, historically invested a fair amount, and this is for more than a decade actually, in companies that per, uh, specifically target females, just specifically target that in households, women tend to write a fair amount of the checks. They are the purse strings, they control the spend of a household. So we've made a number of investments in and around that, and that's been uh, really consistent for quite a while. And then everyone is always searching for this, and we've made you know some investments in and around social and kind of how people are going to communicate and how they communicate. So we have Triller on one end of the spectrum, um, we have others, and we tend to invest in those very early. So, because once something has broken out and become WhatsApp or Instagram, it just, it, it's way past us. So we make a fair amount of bets in and around um, communication, however you want to say it, social or, or mobile, or however you want to, how people communicate basically. And, um, and those are the areas I think within consumer that we've had a little bit of success and that we've felt like on the go forward, probably won't go wrong in those areas. Just your bar gets higher, DTC bar is very high. You know, the DTC bar just has to be really high. And then maybe on the social side, uh, it's a little less because you don't know. It catches fire, it doesn't. And you, you hope it catches fire. It'll probably morph a couple ways before it gets to where it needs to get to. But those are the, those are the areas we've tended to focus on. What needs to attract you from an entrepreneur or an idea? Or I guess just generally, how are you thinking about like the future of uh, communication and the future of social? Sometimes it's there's something you see in the market that, is a little bit of a disconnect. I'll explain that. And then there's uh, how do you uh, invest around passions? So those are the two areas within that. And so a disconnect would be an example is, you know, before the government started having some challenges with TikTok, we did like what Triller was doing because they were working with artists. And so we made early bet there um, that because there were, anytime you're investing alongside artists or people who are passionate, there's something to be said for uh, you know, what could happen. You don't know what's going to happen. Triller since then has gone on quite the change of business and that they are almost a promoter now in some ways. And they work with those artists in different ways, but it's a good example is that you, you saw a disconnect between a TikTok that was, by the time TikTok, I mean, that's a great company. It's huge. Uh, obviously, we found, you know, this kind of uh, bifurcation of information that we, we were interested in. Second one is around passions and things you're passionate about. And that's, that's, for example, the dip um, today is, you know, people were clearly becoming more and more passionate about things that the uh, episodic television, for instance, right? Episodic television in areas like Bravo and things that maybe you and I might don't always watch, but they tend to be really like certain devos love those, those, those things. Like they're passionate about it. They will spend time. They will listen to podcasts. They will, that's built around a passion that is entertaining and fun and interesting, and it's it's built around it. And that's what you know. The dip is is building on that today. They they haven't you know built the next great uh, social communication tool, but that is how they want to do that, right? So they they have a podcast network. They have social communities around a bunch of very specific episodic television verticals, and then they're expanding from there. Right. So, you know, there's, there's communication and social communication, but if you're doing it around a passion area, by the way, other ones will be dating and other ones will be perhaps um, work. We haven't invested in those, but those are be things where people like really have a, a guttural reaction to those versus a generalized platform. I feel like those, that's an opportunity, right? Is 
It could be freedom of speech. It could be, you know, things that people are really passionate about and have a real belief in. Those areas around social where we think you could actually build companies. So it's almost it's like verticalizing social in a lot of ways. And you actually are really interested in, I guess, thinking about how these niches and these very, very in-depth, how I guess you're not as much worried about the TAM overall of the niches. You're more worried about how maybe in-depth you can go because that is what the consumer wants. Is that is that roughly correct? Or That's right. That's exactly right. Because you can go really in-depth where everything else is kind of service, like kind of high level, um, but that you can go really in-depth and people will either sign up to be subscribers in the DIPS case or others, like to, to just know everything about a particular social area, right? Or a particular area that they're passionate about. You know, I think you've seen this, you know, before with other, other platforms, whether use dating as an example with Tinder and with uh, Bumble, like, you know, they leveraged a real, something that people were really focused on and passionate about, willing to pay a subscription for. <laughs> like that is a, that is a, that is a different, we haven't made a bit there, bet there, but you know, we do think that there's other verticals like that where you can build big businesses in a really short amount of time because you go deep um, versus going more horizontal. How do you also think about investing in software that, maybe where in social that one of the co-founders is a celebrity or a person that actually does have a significant um, influence. I know we spoke a little bit on the show, for example, on Dispo and what happened with with Dispo and how they uh, navigated around that situation. I'd imagine it's also pretty risky too, because of course you have to, um, because you don't want a situation that maybe happened there. But I'm kind of curious about how you think about it and, and, and how you think about risk in that way. I'd say it was, it, by theory, it was built on this ground probably 10 years ago when I initially invested in the Honest Company because Jessica Alba was the, was the founder. And um, the reason to make that investment and not to make the other 100 I didn't make in that area was because um, she initially went to Congress to try to change the rules around what went into diapers because they weren't healthy for kids. And when nobody would listen, she went and found Christopher Gavigan, to, who wrote the, the book, Healthy Child, Healthy World. He wrote the book, literally. And, and she got him on her team. And then she went and found Brian Lee, who built LegalZoom and Shootazzle. And she put Brian on the team with the three of them. And then, and then Sean, the four of them, you know, really founded the business. And that authenticity of like having not only a good person, which is important to us, just to be very clear, and we probably can't do an investment with anybody we didn't think was fundamentally a good person. It's just part of our DNA as a firm. But having the authenticity of having passion around an area that you're willing to run through a wall, right? It's not just because I'm a celebrity and I'd like to make money. And by the way, the Kardashians and others have done really well with like video games and things, but we wouldn't bet on that because it, it's a little bit of a passing in the night, right? Like, okay, maybe you're going to score really big for a little while on this video game that is associated with some, but we'd rather invest on, and we we we're, we often meet and talk with celebrities around their businesses because we have a little history in it. And the ones who are really passionate and are willing to do anything it takes, willing to give up, like a good way, good example is I think Jessica probably gave up a fair amount of acting roles and other things that like, we're really going to pay her a fair amount of money to build this business. And that's a big trade-off to make. And that means you're really passionate about it and you want to do it. And so the authenticity is like number one on our list. And, and, and if we can't find that authenticity, if they're, not, if they're in it just to make money, then it's less interesting to us. I know you also have had you know, a lot of experience as a board member. I remember you, 
you saying that um, you don't really do like a spray and pray. Your your strategy is much more. Um, you work very very closely with the companies that you invest in. You are a lot more concentrated. What makes like a good board member for those that might be might be early investors that maybe um, this, this this might be their first board seat that they're doing. It's funny. I uh, uh, I try to put myself in the entrepreneur's shoes when I think about this question because what does an entrepreneur really want? And I think one thing people fall into a little bit of a trap in the valley is like pontificating about strategy and high level as a board member. It's important to make hard strategic decisions. So I'm not not arguing that there won't be hard strategic decisions. But if you were the entrepreneur, what do you want? Introduce me to a customer. <laughs> like like te- hire me an engineer. <laughs> like, like help me understand why my competitors are outselling me in this vertical. Like do the things that are, you are part of their management team, right? Like who do they want on their management team? They want somebody who could bring them customers, right? They want somebody who can actually, uh, you know, help them bring in a team and engineers. They want someone who can like do the kind of analysis in the market to really think through like, hey, this is what I've seen before in com- these other companies I invested in. Like here's why we seem to be falling short, right? Um, and so it's it's really being like, if you, if you really try to be part of their management team, where if you as an entrepreneur are like, what do I want out of my management team? I want this company to grow faster, get bigger, execute, hire a team. That to me is like what a good board member is. And that's going all the way back to the beginning of this conversation. You know, building your network where you can hire people and you can bring in customers and you can uh, you know, actually help a, help a CEO because you've already done investments in and around certain areas. That's huge. In any way you could find out to do that. And it's okay, even if you're totally new to the business, you can cold call customers. Like, isn't that a shot? Like, like, like VCs, like we always joke around, it's like, like VCs, you know, we, we do, we have, we have quite a bit of capital to invest and we, we have a great job. We love what we do. Do the really hard work for your companies. Like cold call customers. Like try to, when you're doing diligence, cold call customers and try to get, hey, you know, I'm talking to this company. They're building a great HR software for uh, healthcare clinics. Cold call some clinics for them. You know what I mean? And like, and be like, hey, you know what? I, um, I'd love to introduce you to this company. The CEO will appreciate that more than you telling him how big his TAN is or than you telling him like how big, like, you know, uh, this, like they will appreciate that like much more. And, and, you know, it sounds a little execution oriented, but that's what entrepreneurs want. They want you to actually be like, you know, creating value for them. And if your board member creates value, you will be their most important board member. What's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally? Personally, uh, very at a reasonably young age, I read The Stranger by Camus, which is about uh, existentialism. But really the main character, his life was kind of dull and lacked any kind of interest or pleasure. Or like it's about, the book is, is kind of fundamental to the existentialist kind of belief. It was so influential because I was like, you know, that is not how I want to live my life. I, I, I'd love to love work. I'd love to love family. I'd love it to be like so ingrained. The, the, the challenge is we often do things that don't always make us that happy. Um, you're, you're running your own podcast. You enjoy it. You get to talk to people and you get to learn a lot about what you're doing. And if you can put, make all the facets of your life be, you know, kind of have, you know, really interesting and compelling. Um, you know, I really... Personally, that was something that stuck with me at a very young age is trying to find things that make you happy in different parts of not just your one part, not just work, not just family, not just friends, um, but try to find that 
it ends up leading to having you know stronger relationships. I'm still very close with high school friends, college friends, um, business school friends, work friends from 30 years ago, um, because I tried to always spend time with people and doing things I enjoy. So that was one thing. So Camu, I think uh, the stranger was one. And then on the work side, right when I started at General Catalyst, so I started in 2004 at General Catalyst, a book came out called Freakonomics, which is a little controversial. Um, New York Times uh, writer, and it really talked about two things, incentives and information asymmetry. And those two things, like incentives and information asymmetry, I compartmentalized as I read that book. It came out like a couple of years after I started. But how much of those two things drive our industry Like, and, and made an influence? It is. It's like, what, what incentivizes this person to do what they're doing? And what incentivizes them to you know, take your capital when it's a commodity over someone else's? And then information symmetry, it's like, what information have you garnered? And this is why I historically tended to invest, you know, not in one space that moved to another, but invest in a few areas that are related or, or, or because what information do you have that's asymmetric to everyone else, right? Like, is there something that you have that's different, right? And I remember early on investing in consumer D2C companies, you know, there was a moment in time, this is maybe 11, 12 years ago, where NPS became like a very important number. And I felt like there was some ACES that like the way you thought about it, NPS and the way it related to how much people loved your product became very asymmetric to how other people were looking at just churn and LTV. So you had churn and LTV, and then you had like, do people actually love this thing? And you could find out if people love this thing if, with like a thousand people, you don't need like a million people, right? And LTV and churn change completely. Like over time, like because Facebook cost goes up and your churn rises and people drop and you, that the numbers that people were using back then weren't the right numbers. Like now it is because if you have 10 million customers, you know, you're LT, you know, you're LT. But what was really for an early stage investor what was really important at the time. And this has changed a little bit was NPS. And so that information asymmetry, you know, I, I kind of thought a lot about and in any investment trying to figure out if you have some information that doesn't match what everyone else has. And then incentives, I think, just life in general, incentives drive everyone. And, and so having an understanding of what you're, what that entrepreneur really cares about, and it might not always be what you would think, um, but what is what are the incentives that drive? So economics can be a little, it's it's now 15 years old, but it can be a little bit uh, controversial. But I, I think I, I really thought of it in those two ways around, around incentives and information asymmetry. I love that. I also really appreciate your explanations for both books. The Stranger, we've actually never had that uh, someone mention The Stranger yet. So you're very original there, Neil. My final question to you is, what's the best piece of advice that you've received or that you might find yourself saying over and over again? Okay, so I'll make it relevant to your, well, one that's not relevant, one that's relevant to being on a consumer podcast. But one of the funniest ones I ever heard that I use all the time is, you know, sometimes you have a company that's struggling and you're trying to figure out like, okay, it's, it's having a hard time. Why? Right. Sometimes companies just struggle. Like, the, you know, the market's not quite what they thought. The, the competition is really severe. And we had um, a partner for a little while at GC who was also somebody I knew from AOL because he was on the, he was vice chairman of AOL Time Warner. His name is uh, Ken Novak. And we're, we're all talking about this company that's struggling and we're going to put it together with another company, 
right? Like, because everybody thinks that solves the problem, right? Like if you're gonna like merge a couple of companies together, like, oh, we'll save a little money here and we'll do this. And we had this like hour long conversation, which always happened at partner meetings. And, and at the end of the conversation, Ken, and I, I love giving him credit for this because I love this quote because I use it all the time. It's like, hey guys, putting two turkeys together doesn't make an eagle. <laughs> and, like, and like, I love that statement. It's like, you know, it's, it's sometimes things, you know, just trying to like jam a couple things together, try to save money on cost or do this or do that. That isn't your problem. <laughs> your problem is the market or the consumer doesn't like what you're building or there's something else that it, it's a, putting two turkeys together will not create an eagle. Like it doesn't matter what you do. It will, not, it will absolutely uh, not create an eagle. And then the one that's probably most relevant to you and, and probably one that uh, my partner, Joel, actually at General Catalyst told me, um, and it, it really brought a lot of clarity to consumer investing. So I'll mention it here is, you know, if you're buying customers, you know, buying customers isn't, isn't the solution. Like just paying money to buy customers is never the solution. And over time that has just panned out over and over and over again, because you have two forces at work. You have the platforms in which you buy, which have become very concentrated. And then you have the actual kind of, are people just buying, are people just using this and then they're going to drop it, right? So purchasing customers isn't the answer. <laughs> like finding ways to just buy customers is, is never the answer. And, and it's really attractive. And you will find like these incredible runs of, like we've seen companies go from zero to hundred million like overnight, but they've been buying the customer and it, and it wasn't really the right solution. You, ha you have to figure out another way that people get passionate about what you're doing, passionate about what you're building. And don't and don't spend a bunch of money on all the platforms that people spend a lot of money on um, to acquire them, and try to figure out if you can do that without actually having to find them all. It won't always work in every industry. We have some where you do have to spend a fair amount on Facebook and Google. But you know, generally speaking, if you're building consumer businesses, people gotta love the product. People have to be passionate about what you're building. People have to wake up every day wanting to touch your app or touch your product. If you're not seeing that in the numbers even early on it's a real risk for the long-term viability of the business. I love both those pieces of advice. Uh, two turkeys don't equal an eagle. Neil, this has been so much fun. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you so much, Rick. Really appreciate you having me on. Enjoyed the discussion. And uh, and, and thank you for sharing me with uh, your audience. I appreciate it. Really appreciate it, Neil. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure chatting with Neil. I hope you all enjoyed that one as much as I did. I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter, at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>